Welcome to episode 15 of Cyberbytes the podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cooper, co-founder of Aspron Search. This week's guest, we have CEO and co-founder of Run Zero, Chris Kursk. Chris tells us his secrets to building a great security team culture within his business and shares some of the do's and don'ts of rebranding. How are you, mate? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for having me. Good, good, good. I saw you was, uh, is it NateCon last week? What, what exactly Nola is that? NolaCon. NolaCon, yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what is that? for New Orleans, Louisiana, NOLA. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's a cybersecurity conference. Uh, on the smaller side, it's more of a crowd, a little bit like DEF CON, uh, but more regionalized and so on. Good conference, like good people. Good. Uh, good conversations, yeah. Slightly different to, to RSA a few weeks back. Very different to RSA, yeah. RSA is a is a, a, a giant show, and it's mostly vendors, I, I find. And uh, it's very corporate. Uh, and NOLACON is the opposite end of the spectrum. It's very grassroots organized uh, by people and so on. The, the speaker dinner was actually at the organizer's private residence and they home cooked. Oh, wow. They didn't even cater in. So it's a much more personal feel. You would never get that at RSA. Unreal. Yeah, yeah great. Because I know yeah. you actually, at RSA, you ended up like hiring sort of a, a cafe restaurant, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we we rented out a cafe uh, close to the conference. We didn't want to be stuck on the conference floor. It's very hard to stand out there. And uh, and it is very expensive for what you get. And so uh, by renting out a cafe, we had a, a small stage, we had a place for meetings, we had place for, um, yeah, for for little events where we interviewed like uh, one person we interviewed was Chris Nickerson. He is one of the founders of B-Sides and, and created the uh, P-Test penetration testing standard. Nice. And then we, um, he was really fun. He was really fun. He's always, always a good person to talk to. And then we had Roger Rustat from Fortinet. He's one of our customers and he talked about asset inventory and how he takes care of that at Fortinet. Amazing. Cool. Well, before we dive into some, some pretty good topics today, keen to just run back through your career today, how you've managed to become CEO of Run Zero. Um, we try and do it as quick as possible. Yeah. Um, but look, really keen to learn how you've got to where you are and then we can talk a bit more sure sure so uh i didn't really plan to end up here <laughs> so i'm not sure how, how much i can give in terms of advice i've been in cybersecurity for over 25 years um started out back in germany um i was number three in a in a company that was a software company security uh, software company spun out from a consulting uh, company and uh, we created a, a product for email encryption. So using the, the PGP standard and SMIME standards and some other things, mm -hmm. sold mostly to German and European customers. And then a few years later, uh, we got acquired by PGP Corporation uh, in the US. And that's one of the reasons why I moved over. And um, yeah, then worked for a few different companies, uh, uh, moved on to Rapid7. That's where I met my current co-founder. Um, he's H.D. Uh, Moore. He's the creator of Metasploit. Yep. And we worked on Metasploit for a little while. And, um, you know, even at that time, we, uh, we learned that one of the basic problems that a lot of companies haven't solved and companies of all sizes is uh, to know what they have on their network. You know, they all 
people all have like some networking diagram that's outdated and like from you know five years ago and you know since then the world's changed and and etc mm -hmm. and they keep finding devices that are not in the diagram and that they didn't know about and sometimes these devices are compromised and this is how they find out and that's not a good way to go about it so uh my co-founder uh, started a company and started creating the product um used to be called rumble it's now called run zero and basically he uh yeah he he's a really good technologist he's a subject matter expert knows the space really well and created a product and created product market fit which is really important before then scaling the company so uh, i had moved on to veracode at the time was building the product marketing team and uh, after the third acquisition i got uh, tired of veracode and just wanted something different and i uh, texted hd and he said hey wh why don't you come over here and uh, uh, help me build run zero and that's how i ended up there Nice. Did it take much convincing for you to to jump ship? Or uh, it well, I had kind of made the decision to move on, and mm. I was going to take six months off. Uh, so he didn't have to convince me to leave. He did have to convince me to join. Um, and you know, I, I looked at the product, and I I know he builds really good tech. Mm -hmm. When a technologist builds tech. I'm always a little bit cautious to see if it's cool tech that's looking for a market or if there's actually a market there, right? And he'd already gotten, I think it was 90 customers by the time that we uh, we were talking and, and uh, just under a million in, in ARR by himself as a part-time job, by the way, because he was still working as a pen tester for another company. Mm -hmm. And so I, I saw that and I thought like, wow, that's amazing. And he had some, it was not only like small shops, there was also some blue chip companies and some sizable deals and so on. So I thought if we add sales and marketing on top of that, we can really grow this into a, a, a sizable company. And it kind of showed me like early market validation that there's something there. Great. I've seen you're, um, you're pretty vocal about the customers that you do have on board as well on mm -hmm. your website and yeah. some of the success that you have had. So yeah. How um how big is the company of Run Zero now, from a headcount uh, perspective? Yeah, so we're just over eighty people. Okay. Um. Yeah, just over eighty people right now. And is that all US or is that global? That is all US. Yeah, we wanted to make our lives easier from a payroll and legal and compliance perspective by just hiring in the US. Yeah. Uh, and we also have some government customers, so it makes it easier for that uh, for that part as well. And uh, we did choose to be 100% remote. Uh, HD is in Austin, Texas, and I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So we, we weren't in the same town to begin with. And uh, I've worked remotely with HD before at Rapid7. Well, we were both in like associated with an office. He was really there. I was often in the Boston office, but yeah. the relationship between the two of us was remote. And so uh, HD said like, hey, I think I can run uh, engineering remotely. What do you want to do with sales and marketing? Do you think you need an office and do you want to build one in Boston? And I thought about it for a moment and uh, we decided not to go for it. And that had a few reasons. First of all, it was during COVID. So renting an office during that time was not a good idea anyway. Uh, secondly, I kind of sensed from some people, some people hated working from home. 
but other people really liked it. And I also saw the first signs of companies saying like, oh, you know, like we're going to all ask you to come back to the office when, when this whole thing ends. And I saw a lot of people cringe and like, mm, you know, say like, oh, do I have to? And all right, uh, hope it's not five days a week and all of that stuff. So I could see some, some people pulling back from that and preferring a remote, remote experience. Then also, I find that uh, getting together in person is great, uh, minus the things, you know, commuting at the, uh, the cost for the office, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, hybrid, I think, is actually worse than remote or in person. Uh, because if you've ever been a remote person, dialing into a conference room where other people are having a conversation, it's a really bad experience. You can't hear people well, can't see the whiteboard, side conversations, it's just really hard to follow. And so a fully remote um, environment actually provides the, the, the best kind of experience for everybody if some of them are going to be remote. And if you have two founders in different cities, one of them is always going to be remote, right? Unless you want to really, you know, pay a lot of money to United and fly people around the globe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, completely. <laughs> and, right. Completely. And, and then also from a hiring perspective, if you have an office in a certain city, you are limited to the talent pool in that city. Yep. So uh, it, it makes it a lot harder to find somebody who's a good fit for your company uh, and where the timing's right, et cetera. We, we can look uh, nationwide. Um, so, so that makes it easier. So, you know, overall, uh, we, we opted for a remote experience and uh, it's really worked for us so far. Yeah, love that, love that. There's lots of uh, nuances we can talk about remote, mm -hmm. hybrid and all that sort of stuff, but let's not go into all of that. That's uh, really keen to understand though, how you built a culture as a remote first business. And I saw your values on your website are, mm -hmm. are pretty, yeah, they're great. And I just wondered how are you actually it's like cementing that within the culture of your current firm. Yeah, yeah. So the the cultural values for those that are uh, are not on our website right now and are just listening in. So there are a, a few things, five things. It's uh, being kind and fair, being transparent, focusing on customers, making sound decisions, and then uh, must, uh, fostering mindful growth. So basically, um, uh, taking feedback and, and and those kind of things. So those are five values that we came up with, not by, you know, with the founders sitting in a, in a room and, and drafting them up or copying from another website, but we uh, brought five people from the company together, different seniorities, backgrounds, uh, departments, and so on. And we asked them about like why they joined Run Zero, what they appreciate about the culture, et cetera. Um, and uh, so we, we came up with these values from the starting point of interviewing our existing employees. And we did that at about 15 employees because we knew we would get a culture. We might just not get the culture we want if we don't write it down and start, you know, living that culture. And so um, I, I don't think any of these values have anything to do with being remote per se. I think those values would work just as well in a, in a physical office culture. Uh, and uh, we reinforce these in a, in a few different ways. So, for example, we have a peer recognition system called Bonusly. It's a company, you can look it up, bonus.ly, I think. And essentially, you 
everybody gets a, a, a budget of points each month. They can give points to other people to say thank you for things they did. And uh, one of the things we do is we add hashtags with the cultural values to the end of that. So you can pick from the cultural values and kind of say like why you're giving uh, those, uh, those points to somebody, like what cultural value this relates to. And that helps remind people and reinforce uh, that, that value. Another thing we do is we look for uh, these kind of values in the interviews when we interview people. And now you, it's very hard to say like, hey, are you transparent or are you kind and fair or do you make sound decisions, right? You can't really ask that. But you can say like, hey, um, tell me about a time, you know, when you had to make a hard decision, how did you go about that? And you listen, for example, if they're trying, if they're making a decision from the gut, if they're being uh, data driven, you can ask people, um, let's say, uh, I'm hiring a, a sales manager and I'm saying like, hey, was there ever a time where uh, most salespeople have, was there ever a time where like, you know, your forecast wasn't on target, uh, <laughs> right? How did you handle that? You know, and then listen to, were they transparent about that? How did they communicate that across the organizations and how did they solve for that? Mm -hmm. um, or you ask people, you know, did you ever have an employee who didn't perform well? How did you handle that situation, right? And so you can listen for things like, did they treat that employee kind and fair when they had those conversations, right? Yeah, got it. How are you um, driving transparency from the top um, and the founders? Because I, yeah. I, spoke, I spoke to Rob Lee a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago and he came on the podcast yeah. and he said they, he hosts a Ask Me Anything every month. He has an hour mm -hmm. where anyone in the company can ask him literally anything. Yeah. And I thought that that was really a great initiative and idea. And we've actually rolled it out into to Asperon mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. How are you guys like? What are you so doing? So we have, for example, we have a town hall every month that's uh, ninety minutes, and so we provide a lot of updates uh, to the team on what's going on in the company, and we try to be very transparent about that. So down to uh, the financial metrics and those kind of things, so that you know things that you usually wouldn't see in another company, and we then also allow people to ask questions at the end so it's not an exclusive ama uh, like rob's doing mm -hmm. but it's a town hall where we first inform and then people ask questions based on that or you know based on any other thing and uh we uh we recently also changed it so that it's not a question that you ask over zoom chat but that you ask over like an anonymous google form so that people uh feel more empowered to ask questions with you know like yeah. ask honest questions right uh, when we were a small company it was a little bit easier and now that we're over 80 people uh, i think some people are reluctant to speak up in a in a large group so by making them anonymous i think it's a little bit easier for them to ask tough questions yeah i love that yeah great it's like an anonymous box that they can ask a question yeah, that's really interesting. exactly yeah, yeah exactly nice. yeah what about when you went through like the rebrand from Rumble to Run Zero? Did you mm -hmm. did you like get the the current like team involved in that? Did you like give them an idea? We're looking to do this. Can yeah. we get some ideas, yeah. or was that just sort yeah. of put on them? Yeah. So there's actually uh, the, the 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 whole story is probably a little bit too long for this podcast, but I, I do have a, <laughs> a four part blog post on the website where 
a walk people like so if you're if you're rebranding i recommend you read it if if not then it's probably a little bit too much um where i walk people through the whole process mm. it's uh, it basically we had a it wasn't a, a legal branding conflict with another company but there was another company that uh was becoming more and more well known and so there was room for confusion and so on so we decided hey we, we uh we would rather sidestep and uh, and find a different name and so we started out on a journey and what what i've experienced i've done a lot of like especially product naming projects some company naming projects and rebranding branding projects it's usually best to keep it to a small group until you have the final name because otherwise people get hooked like you know it's, it's very disruptive to the whole organization then people like discuss all the all the potential names and start maybe like if you're going down a route like we we, we had I think five times or something like that, where we almost had the right candidate, you know, and pulled it at the last minute for some reason or other. And so if we had communicated that early, then engineers might have started putting that name into the product or, you know, like trying to get ahead of things and so on. And that's just super disruptive. So we decided to keep it to a smaller group. I think it was about five people, uh, founder, co-founder, a uh, few people from marketing, head of sales. And, uh, you, you try to find the name first. Uh, what is really important, I think, is that you get the right uh, domain. Uh, finding a domain that is available on .com is super hard. It's getting harder and harder because even when people stop using a certain name, like we we had rumble.run, mm -hmm. we still have that domain. We're not going to give that up because we're, we still have you know SaaS platforms that have, we've signed up for and emails that are coming in under the email address. So we can't give up the old domain. There's some companies, I, I wanted to buy some domains from companies that had uh, been around for a while and they had like 1,600 domains registered under their DNS server, right? So, so getting the domain is really important. Um, I would have, you know, there are differing opinions. Some people say like, you don't have to get the .com. We had gotten burnt because rumble.com was the site that caused a headache for us. Yeah. And we had rumble.run and that caused us to rebrand. So we absolutely definitely wanted to get a .com. Uh, and once we found run zero, we registered like, you know, all the common top level domains as well and different variations and so on, just to make sure that we're, we're clean and safe for the future. Amazing. That's a that's a really yeah. interesting lesson yeah. learned. Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah. I'll um I'll put the the link to that blog in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Great. Um, well, look, really just keen. One final thing was to ask is where did your passion for social engineering come into to this? Because I saw that you won a black badge at DefCon. What year was yeah. that? That was DefCon twenty five. God, that was uh six years ago or so. Seven, I think seven, this. Yeah. yeah, six seven years, something like that. Yeah, and so basically. I, I'd gone to like, I, I, first time I went to DEF CON, uh, you know, I, I, I have a marketing background, so mm -hmm. I got sent to a lot of trade shows, but usually the boring ones, right? <laughs> the ones where you stand at a booth and you talk to people and you do like, customer conversations and vendor, vendor alliances and all of that stuff. And DEF CON, uh, to me, the first DEF CON that I went to, uh, was really good fun because there's, there's no vendor booths, there is no name badges. You just go there to chat to other people and you, and to learn. And, uh, one of the, uh, villages that I really enjoyed. So DEF CON has this concept of villages, uh, mm -hmm. just to explain it to folks not familiar with it, that are almost like sub conferences in the same space. 
um, there's, I think, 20 or 30 of them at DEF CON. And it's anything from lock picking to, to hacking airplanes and voting machines to um, all sorts of other stuff. So like, basically, think of it as a, as a focus area within security that you want to discuss. And I really like the social engineering village because what they did there is they had contestants up on stage in a soundproof booth in front of about 500 to 1,000 people that uh, were calling companies that they'd been assigned. They had a list of 30 different pieces of information that they had to extract from the other side over the phone. And they had a 20-minute window. And so that was really interesting, really good fun. You have one contestant at a time and the whole audience listens in. And so I came home and, and I told my husband about that. And he's like, I think you'd be good at that. And, and I thought like, hmm, really? <laughs> it was also, you know, I am reasonably technical for a marketer, but I'm not uh, so technical that I could go and, and participate in the CTF or yeah. the, the Wi-Fi hacking village or something like that. Uh, that would be like a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. So I thought social engineering, if I think about that, I've been working in, in marketing and sales, those kind of things. There's a lot of social engineering practices that uh, are, are adopted by, by those disciplines as well. And I, I thought that even though it's a very methodology, um, even though there's a lot of methodology behind social engineering, it's less technical. Mm -hmm. There is a technical aspect, which is the preparation, which is all of the OSINT research, yeah. like all of the open source research that you're doing on the target. Uh, that can get very technical, but uh, the the actual conversations over the phone, you just have to figure out what's your attack vector, your pretext, like how, how do you want the information flow to be? How do you chain together the different things that you, you're asking about? And uh, yeah, so that was... Uh, that was more achievable for me. Uh, I did it two years. First year, I did really well in the report, but I got zero connects and I didn't get any points on the call. It was, uh, I had a, a firewall company as a target and it was a Saturday afternoon where I was calling them and it was just really hard to get people on the phone. And then uh, next year I had a toy company and I found some stores that were open. They had, uh, they had uh, retail channels, like third-party channels, but they also had some of their own branded stores that were part of the organization. So I targeted the stores and I was able to get in there. Uh, so that was a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh, and then the good thing is once you win, you're not, not allowed to go back and compete again. So <laughs> <laughs> I did hear that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is good for me because then I can say like, oh, I would totally come back and crush it again, but I can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, no, it's... Uh, I actually think it's a good thing because otherwise these contests uh, contests can get very incestuous, right? Where the same people go up on stage every year. And uh, this way you make room for fresh blood. And 100%. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe next year I'll, uh, I'll give it a go. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Apply. Uh, I think the, the application window is June 1st for, yeah, for this year. It was my favorite village as well. I did enjoy aerospace yeah. village, um, yeah. but that was, and car hacking village was good actually, but yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible watching them call up and uh, get information out of these people and everyone in the crowds crying in laughter. How, yeah. But um, great. But look, what, what's next for, for run zero? What What's next? So, you know, when you when you think about asset inventory, it's the, the foundation for security programs 
to make good decisions, right? You can only start building a security program if you know what you have. And when I see a lot of solutions out there, they aim to do something else higher up in the stack and they know that they can't do it without asset inventory, but the company doesn't have good asset inventory. So they, they somehow do it, but they don't do a very good job at it. So I, I think there is room for a product out there that has really solid asset inventory. And then based on that solid foundation helps uh, people make solid security decisions, right? So basically now that we have the asset inventory from IT to OT to cloud and remote, and now we can help people make better decisions based on that data. Yeah, great. Chris, thanks for coming on, brother. It's been great to speak. Thank you. I really appreciate it.